Chapter 16, Part 1 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Christoph Stangenberg. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. The Shrines of the Hindu Faith The next morning we awoke to find ourselves on the fruitful and cultivated plain of Bengal. We were flying by mud settlements and passing through numberless paddy fields, rice, pan, or betel nut plantations. Here and there we came upon a field white with the poppy of the opium plant, or with a tall standing crop of castor oil shrub. Others, again, were filled with barley and those coarse millets on which the natives subsist, and all the crops were kept alive and green by that terribly laborious process of irrigation. How familiar we became with the inclined causeway, up and down which the yoke of oxen toil, the native riding on the rope which draws the water up in leathern bags and empties it into the irrigation channels, each patch of cultivation, each field, has to be watered by this toilsome method. One unconsciously acquires the idea that India is a country covered with vast primeval forest and jungle. Rather disappointing, therefore, are the two thousand miles or so one travels across from ocean to ocean, from Bombay to Calcutta, without seeing a vestige of either. Often we saw a herd of buffaloes or a troop of monkeys, while parakeets, the little green lovebirds, another tropical species of the feathered tribe, perched along the telegraph wire. Here and there also a solitary heron, with grey wings and red bill, standing solemnly on the edge of a marshy pool. The trains are heavy and enormously long, on account of the immense number of natives travelling, their rates being as low as one-third the first-class fares. The native servants are locked into a compartment next to the first-class where their masters are. There are outside Venetian shutters to all the carriages, and every other window of the long carriage has blue or coloured glass, very charming, doubtless, for the glare of summer but a great nuisance now with short days and an early twilight. The refreshment rooms on all the lines are exceptionally good. We have often dined there in preference to the hotel. But as for the luxuries of Indian travelling you often hear about, we did not find them. True, the Anglo-Indian invariably travels with an army of servants, a well-stored hamper, and thinks sixty pounds of ice in the carriage indispensable, but he is an exceptional mortal. A triangle or fork of steel thrice struck and which gives forth a clear, melodious tone is the signal at the stations for the all aboard. Such is a description which fairly answers to all our succession of long railway journeys in India. At 1pm we crossed the bridge over the Kurumnaza, a river abhorred by the Indians, hence its name, signifying Virtue Destroyer, and which forms the boundary line between Bengal and the northwest provinces. A branch line brought us to Rajgat, the station for Benares, as the city lies away on the further bank of the Ganges. 
we crossed the Ganges on a bridge of boats, and from here obtained that magnificent coup d'oeil of the river frontage, with its palaces, its mosques and temples, its terraces and flights of steps, that is so striking. Rising above all the confused mass of buildings are the two beautiful minarets of the mosque of Aurangjeba, slightly turned eastwards to catch the first gleams of the rising sun over the sacred waters. It is four miles to Sikrola, the European quarter, and to reach it we drove through the narrow crowded lanes of the native town clustering most thickly near the river. Mud has been a mighty factor in the making of Benares. It is of mud that the walls of the huts are built, mud that forms the fence around fields and compounds, mud that protects the newly planted trees, and lastly, it is mud in which the little brown babies in the streets are dabbling to their heart's content. There are hedges and bushes, rather trees, I should call them, of cacti, growing in all directions. Here we saw weaving being carried on by the roadside in a very primitive fashion. A double row of stakes were placed at long intervals, and women, walking up and down, were winding the thread in and out. It produced a very pretty effect when the thread was of bright red, and the simple loom some yards in extent. Then we saw for the first time that comical little native carriage called the Eka. The trappings of the pony are gaudy, and the bamboo shafts are attached by coloured cords to the high-peaked Spanish collar. The carriage itself is like a diminutive gig with a bamboo head, producing exactly the effect of a curicle standing on end. On arriving at Clark's Hotel, we found we were just in time for evening service, for which the bell was tolling from the church in the compound opposite. Monday, January 19th. By seven o'clock we found ourselves driving down to the banks of the Ganges to see one of the most animated and picturesque sights of India. The Bathing Ghat is a bright-coloured hive, swarming with the religious people performing the ceremony of bathing in the sacred waters. A bajro, or ancient barge, glides slowly with us up and down along this splendid river frontage. For one mile these palaces and temples line the bank, facing every way, joining each other at right angles, with ancient stairways and broken walls hidden under the foliage of some sacred people of feathery tamarind. These palaces take pink or green or yellow tints. Those tender shades, those pale varieties, seen only in eastern climes, under the true azure clearness of an eastern sky. The dark weather stains and the crumbling cornices are all in harmony. The basement of these palaces presents a plain surface of wall, and the living rooms are in the two upper stories, whence spring the arches and the pillars, the fretwork of the balconies, the carvings, all those varieties and medleys of architecture which render these palaces so quaintly curious. For the most part, they belong to the native princes, the Maharajas and Rajs, who beside their provincial palaces each have one at Benares, where they come yearly to perform a cleansing pilgrimage. The women of the Zenana and the members of the household are brought here also to die. On the broad steps of the Ghat and on the hundreds of platforms running out into the river, the entire population of Benares are gathered to bath at this early hour of the morning. 
A gorgeous coup d'oeil the banks present. The steps are bright with the thousands of brass pots which each worshipper brings down with him. Rainbow patches are seen at frequent intervals, where the pink and yellow, green and orange saris spread out to dry on the beach form long streaks of colour, and these are repeated above, in the same gay streamers depending from the windows and balconies of the palaces, and that are floating lazily in the breeze. A brilliant spectacle it is, which, when examined in detail, presents at every turn some strange picture, some new feature of the Hindu religion. On the steps are squatted men, with eyes tightly shut, saying their prayers towards the rising sun, laying their fingers to their noses, touching the water with their foreheads three times. An old Shastri up there is chanting the sacred words in droning tones, Another is seated under the shade of one of the bamboo umbrellas that dot the banks, selling garlands for offerings to the gods, or ready with his clay to remake the cased mark after bathing. Many, with upturned chins, are having a cold shave. Some washing their heads with mud, which lathers up, and does not make such a bad substitute for soap after all. They are using the toothbrush, or substituting a finger for the same. There are Brahmins, generally bathing in batches together, and known by the white thread around their necks. Here are some women preparing their little offerings of leaves and flowers to throw into the river, the whole surface of which is strewn with the orange marigolds thus sacrificed. There are three women coming down the steps, a brilliant study of orange, amber and russet. Here a whole family party bathing together, from one of the palaces above proceeds forth weird, deep-toned and monotonous music, sounding forth over the heads of this vast multitude, reaching even to the few coolies who are bathing from the mud-banks on the further shore. Under the gilt dome and square-red pagoda of the Nepalese temple, that lies under the shadow of the king of Nepal's palace, there are a file of pilgrims, but just arrived from their distant border country. In the midst, and not in the least apart from the careless chattering throng, is the Manikarnika Ghat, the most sacred of all the burning guts of the Ganges. The charred remains of one body are on the smouldering pile, and another, the body of a woman, wrapped in a bright violet sari, lies floating feet foremost in the water. The head is uncovered, for the priests are shaving the hair and placing the clay in the mouth. A fleet of butchers, like our own, are drifting along the bank, and here and there we see moored a more ponqui, or peacock barge. The head of the peacock forms the handsome prow, while the tail is represented along either side, a very favourite and sacred boat with the Hindus. Here the steps are sinking slantways into the water, and we are shown the leaning temple which is quite out of the perpendicular, gradually subsiding into the river, but only like several others around it. A huge yellow monster sits propped against the wall, the thank-offering of a paralytic cured by bathing in the Ganges. Numberless Hindu temples, known always by the tower of crenellated smaller towers tapering to the largest and crowning one, are seen behind and in between the palaces. They are found in every part and corner of the sacred city. 
Above all is always seen the landmark formed by the slender minars of the great mosque. We went up into one of the palaces and you are surprised at the beautiful carving of the pillars leading into the inner courts, the carved doors and latticework, the rambling dimensions and the rabbit warren propensities of the building. We then climbed up a mountain by steps to reach the Man Mandil Observatory. Here we saw a most wonderful collection of rude astronomical instruments constructed 150 years ago. On the flat roof of the building there are several charts of the heavens drawn roughly into the stone and still traceable. There are some instruments of gigantic size which include two enormous arcs reached by a stone staircase in the center belonging to the gnomon, an instrument for ascertaining the declination and distance of any star or planet from the meridian. Then there is the mural quadrant for taking the sun's altitude, which has walls 11 feet high and 9 broad, built in the plain of the meridian. The observatory brought us out by some narrow back streets to the carriage, and we were glad to think of returning home for breakfast. Before visiting any of these shrines of the Hindu faith, I will just give the outline of the Hindu religion. Like all mythology, it is infinitely complex, but two great divisions are distinguished in the followers of Shiva and the followers of Vishnu. Under various names and in varied forms, these are the two gods most worshipped. Shiva is at once the destroyer and the reproducer, the emblem of life and death, the god of sound philosophical doctrine. In a more terrible aspect, he is worshipped as the roarer, the dread one. He is represented with a human head with five faces and a body with four arms with a club and necklace of skulls. His wife is Devi, the goddess worshipped as the gentle Una or Light, or in the terrible form of Kali or Durga, a black fury dripping with blood hung with skulls. The Brahmins, true to the higher instincts of their caste, worship Shiva as the destroyer and reproducer of life, hanging garlands about the god and leaving the lower castes to pour out the blood of their victims before the terrible Kali. Vishnu, or the unconquerable preserver, has ten or twenty-two incarnations, or avatars, on earth, which give rise to an almost equal number of pretty legends. He is an easy-going god, very human and the popular deity. He is worshipped under the various names of Krishna, Rama, Jagannath or the Lord of the World and Ganesh when he is represented with an elephant's head. Buddhism claims many of the nation as its followers and its birthplace was at Benares. Gautama Buddha, the Enlightened, was born near Benares in 543 BC he preached to the lower caste and taught that the state of a man in this life, in all previous and in all future lives, is the result solely of his own acts. He advocated no sacrifices but great duties combined with perfect self-control. No wonder that, with a religion approaching so nearly to the true one, he still numbers in Asia 500 millions of followers. Buddhism has more adherence than any other religion in the world. Very closely connected with the subject of religion is that of caste. 
which forms the basis of all society and religion in India. There may be said to be four great divisions of caste, the Brahmins or priests, the Kshatriyas or Rajputs who are warriors, the Vaishyas or husbandmen, and the Sudras or serfs. The Brahmin in ancient days was the priest, the poet, the philosopher, physician, astronomer and musician of the people. For 22 centuries he was the writer and thinker for the whole nation. He formed its grammar and literature. Even now he is distinguished by his slim figure, fair skin and long thin hands, unaccustomed to work from the flat nose and thick lips of the low caste. The Brahmin used to say that at the beginning of the world the Brahmin proceeded from the mouth of the Creator, the Kshatriya from his arms, the Vaishya from his thighs or belly, and the Sudra from his feet. The legend is so far true that the Brahmins were the brain power of the Indian people, the Kshatriyas its armed hands, the Vaishyas the food growers and the Sudras the downtrodden serfs. The castes may not intermarry. None of the higher caste may eat of the food cooked by a man of lower caste. The greatest punishment that can be inflicted upon a Hindu is to be turned out of his caste. All Hindus are vegetarians. They nearly all wear the disfiguring caste marks, white stripes across the forehead and breast, or white and red spot in the center of the forehead. In its social aspect, caste divides the Hindus into guilds, each trade belonging to a different caste and forming a guild for the mutual support of its members. These guilds act also as a kind of trades union, and its members have been known to strike if necessary. All domestic servants, such as Sitches, Kitmugas and Besties, belong to a low caste. Caste is a very complex question, depending, as it does, upon three divisions, viz. upon race, occupation and geographical position. Besides the four great castes above mentioned, there are more than 3,000 other minor caste divisions. End of chapter 16, part 1